We're doing so much fun with Belgium today. Yeah. Can't wait. That was before my time, right? I don't remember that conversation. I mean, it's an ongoing conversation. It is the worst country in the world. Fair enough. So, you know. <laughs> this is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am Stephanie Butnick, and I'm joined by my co-host, tablet editor-at-large, Leah Leibovitz. Shalom. And pickleball phenom, Joshua Molina. <laughs> Huzzah. <laughs> Today on the show, we have two Jewish guests and a Gentile of the week. It's actually been a very long time since we've had a Gentile on this show. Traditionally, we allow one on every week. Huh. And we are glad to welcome them back into our corner. Our first guest is Bernard-Henri Levy, the philosopher, author, and filmmaker. He's about to release his third film about Ukraine, and it's a tribute to everyday Ukrainian heroes, including some Ukrainian-born Israeli soldiers who finished their service in the IDF and then volunteered to fight in Ukraine against the Russians and now are back fighting for Israel. It's a great conversation, and we're grateful to have BHL back on the show. Our Gentile of the Week is Brooke Eby. At the age of 33, she received the terminal diagnosis of ALS, and she joins us to talk about how she's learned to laugh in the face of this brutal disease. I will say we only pick the greatest Gentiles for the show. That's true. It's a curated selection. Correct. The ones we pick are the absolute best. But first, my guys, what what's up? What's going on? Same old, same old. I post one day about my concern for a hostage, and I'm accused of failing to mention innocent Gazans. The next day, I write about three Muslim students who were shot, and someone else is not happy because I've moved the focus off of Israel. What you're saying is that you, you love your life just about now. It's great. Yeah, it's fine. I have to say, I don't know about you guys, but I did spend much of my weekend watching videos of the hostages returning to their families. Like, I could not stop watching them. There was the kids running down the hospital corridors, hugging their dads. There was the ones that got me were like the moms reuniting with their kids. I just, I didn't realize it was like a genre of content I needed, we all needed, but I really cannot stop watching it like just over and over and over again. We got a little bit of good news this weekend, and we're hoping that it continues. And we're just sending our best to everyone and hoping that more hostages get freed soon. Amen. Here, here. But at the same time, I got to tell you, there's something about this conversation that kind of feels eerie. There was a moment that went viral the other week in which a lovely Israeli spokesperson went on, I believe, Sky News. The host of the show asked him, so the deal between Israel and Hamas is such that Israel releases... 150 prisoners and Hamas releases 50 prisoners. So does that mean that you guys value the lives of a Jew three times as much as you value <laughs> the lives of a Palestinian? And it's such a stupid question. That does Israel not think that Palestinian lives are valued as highly as Israeli lives? That is an astonishing accusation. If we could release one prisoner for every one hostage, we would obviously do that. It's worth it just to see his facial expression. Correct. <laughs> immediately after the question is posed. The, the, the facial expression that even without any words you could see says, what the fuck is wrong with Fantastic. you? Fantastic. But here's, but here's what I think. Like In a way, I think this was a missed opportunity and it's a missed opportunity that keeps recurring over this debate. I think the answer ought to have been, yeah, sure. I value the life of a 10-month-old innocent baby much more than I value the life of a terrorist who's in prison for trying to kill people, irrespective of these people's nationalities or religion. It doesn't matter. Innocent baby versus terrorist is not a, an apt moral comparison. And if you can't make this moral comparison, I'm sorry. There's something profoundly wrong 
with like your entire way of looking at the world. And, and the thing that kind of kills me is that we keep on looking at this and it keeps on getting reported as some kind of like intricate algebra of like, oh, they released X and we got Y. I am so, so, so grateful that these people are back home reunited with their families. And yet it once again underscores the absolute lack of humanity with which we're dealing. To me, that kind of clip like just shows what we're up against, right? Like there is literally no winning in this scenario. It's like, okay, we'll give you all these people, right? And then people are like, mm, you must not value their lives. And you're like, no. it's this really bizarro calculus that we're seeing across the world of how this stuff plays out. And it's just disgusting. And I think you see like, oh, they were supposed to free all the siblings together and they're keeping a sibling, they're keeping a mom, they're keeping a child. Like it's so fucked. Like the emotional manipulation here is just like so grotesque. You almost can't wrap your mind around it. You're like, that has to be a mistake. No one would just deliberately mess with a family like that who did nothing, a family who did nothing. And it's, it's, it's true. That's what they're doing. And it's, it's just, it's just disgusting. Speaking of grotesque, this is just New York City. This is just the last four days. We've had the Macy's Day Parade disrupted by pro-Hamas demonstrators that delivered $75,000 worth of damages to the New York Public Library. We've had two attempts to shut down Grand Central Terminal. We've had a violent demonstration on Saturday that made shopkeepers at Columbus Circle have to lock themselves in their stores because pro-Hamas supporters were marching in the streets and saying, Zionists, we know who you are and you know you will come to a bitter end or, or something along these lines. We've had students rioting in a Queens High School when they found out that one of their teachers attended a rally to release the hostages. We've had pro-Hamas demonstrators, some of them Jewish, shut down the Manhattan Bridge. And this morning, I receive an email from a public relations person saying that I should call and talk to the person she's representing, the CEO of the Jewish Council for Public Affairs, which is a you know longtime Jewish advocacy group, about the thing that is really the most pressing in the world, the greatest threat to the Jewish people, Elon Musk interviewing Bibi Netanyahu. The unbelievable depravity of our so-called leadership to see that all these organizations, and by all means, it's not all of them. There are some of them doing good work. But when I see the ADL, an organization that has long beclowned itself, go last week and claim against all available resources and data that there is no such thing as Pallywood. In other words, the you know Hamas strategy of releasing fake videos to blame Israel for war crimes that never existed. The ADL called this a conspiracy theory, even though it was confirmed by, you know, such hotbed Zionist publications like The Atlantic. And they had to take down this release because it was obviously so blatant to see organizations like the JCRC stand with, you know, people like AOC, who believes that the United States dropped chemical weapons on Vieques on behalf of the Israeli government as some part of nefarious Zionist control experiment. To see so many of these organizations that receive our dollars and our support and are supposed to stand with us continue to stupidly side up to the actual people who are trying to hurt us and use their platforms to play cheap, stupid politics. I think every single one of us needs to look at all the donations that they've been making. And if there is a Jewish organization in there that has, over the last, you know, five, six, ten years, aided and abetted the rise of these people who are now making this systemic surge of anti-Jewish violence around the United States possible, you should stop giving the money and you should shame these people because this so-called 
failed, failed, failed leadership is a huge part of the problem here. Not all. There are some good people. Joshua Molina will tell us who they are. No, no, no. I, I want to back up slightly and give you a tender pushback. Is it possible that you are painting with too broad a brush and describing sometimes pro-Palestinian protests as pro-Hamas? Do you make a distinction? Was the Macy's Day interruption, and I condone no violent protest, but was the Macy's Day interruption explicitly pro-Hamas? First of all, there is something really revolting to me in saying like, okay, well, we are going to march explicitly with a Palestinian flag and call for, you know, end or ceasefire or whatever, when there are literal babies in prison. That's when you shut the fuck up. You say, guys, I support you, but you do not hold babies hostage. If it doesn't even occur to you to say that, at that point to me, the lines really blur massively. That's line number one. Line number two, look, this tendency to violently protest there were 300,000 of us in Washington, D.C. There was not a shekel worth of damage to any building. There was no one acting violently. This simply doesn't happen in our demonstrations. And I think it's a great big difference. So at this point, can you make an argument that there is a legitimate concern for the lives of Palestinians that should be taken into consideration whenever you support or not support a certain kind of policy on the Israeli-Palestinian side? 100%. I think you must do that. I think that any viewpoint of the world, as pro-Israeli as it may be, that says, for example, callously, hey, we should flatten Gaza and kill 2 million Palestinians, is completely illegitimate. I think that is part of the moral calculus of every sane person. What really troubles me is that our well-being does not seem to be part of the moral calculus on the other end at all. Again, I, I read Arabic. I continue to sort of look for any kind of meaningful statement of not forget support. I don't care about that. But just saying like, guys, we kidnapped infants. Stop it. I'm not seeing this. And I'm, I think if you really wanted to have a great pro-Palestinian demonstration, I think about so many other ways that this could have been done, including, for example, even like a very general, you know what? Stop killing kids all around. How about Hamas? We call on you to release these babies. Israel, we call on you to stop the bombing because X thousands of kids have died and that's not a price you should be willing to pay. Okay, I hear that. But that's not the demonstrations we're seeing. I hear you and I empathize with your position and I understand your position, but it also to me slightly smacks of the whataboutism that I was referring to earlier just in social media, which matters not at all, particularly my social media. But to insist that nobody protest with a Palestinian flag unless they have made clear their concern about the massacre and the injustice of the acts of October 7th also suggests to me an equivalency or similarity to the people who say, well, look at these people with an Israeli flag. Don't they care about the innocent people of Gaza? I mean, I, I, I've seen Palestinian protests that were peaceful. I don't condone violence ever. I've seen Palestinian protests without putting myself into their minds and hearts and saying, these are people who cannot uh, speak out against Hamas. I, I just think there's, it makes I, me- I'm, I'm, I'm signing on to this, I understand. And yet I wanna make two follow-up points to this. Point number one is that when I could cite, you know, five violent examples just in the course of the last week, I'm sure there were a lot of other kind of very respectful and solid protests out there. I think there is a problem. You had in Brooklyn just a couple of weeks ago, people with Hamas flags, burning down entire blocks in Bay Ridge 
out of support for this insane terrorist organization, which, by the way, still holds American hostages, American citizens hostage. So to me, it is a matter of, of a, a, a huge difference in the quality and quantity of these things. Uh, well, I, all right, I, I agree with you. I sign off on the distinction. I just think were you to observe a peaceful pro-Palestinian protest that involves right. just Palestinian flags, you might describe it as pro-Hamas. Uh, no, I would not. And, and here's, I feel like a little bit like you're strawmanning me because of course the violence is unacceptable. But, but here's the other, this is the other point that I wanted to make. Uh, Stephanie and I moderated this great event for the Jewish Priorities book. Again, I wasn't invited. We made sure to keep you out of there. <laughs> it just uh, wasn't a priority of ours. That's exactly it. <laughs> right. You were not our Jewish priority, Joshua Lee. Completely understand. Join the large majority for whom I'm not a priority. <laughs> our friend Ainat Wilf, the former, you know, Israeli member of Knesset. She's, you know, a liberal lefty in good standing in Israel. She made this excellent point. She said, you know, a lot of times, like, she will talk to her friends who are left of her. She's like, they will say, oh, come on, you're expecting Palestinians to be Zionists. And she said, that's exactly right. I'm expecting Palestinians to be Zionist and recognize and respect my right to have a national homeland and sovereignty, just as I respect theirs. Let me put it this way. If you asked the 300,000 people in D.C., how many of you would support a peaceful Palestinian state side by side with the Jewish state, even at the cost of painful territorial concessions? I'm willing to bet that you could get about 75 to 80 percent of people to say, OK, sure, we'll at least give it a shot. And the same poll taken by Israelis? What numbers do you hazard? Well, after October 7th, I think the numbers are very different. Because, again, years and years and years of Palestinian Authority support for, you know, wanton violence and terrorism, the pay for slave programs, the absolute outbursts of terrorism in the West Bank after October 7th, all of these are problems. But in ideational form, no Israeli has a problem other than the security problems with the existence of a Palestinian entity side by side with Israel. Very few, thankfully, Israelis want to completely erase the Palestinian population from being. No Israeli, again, with very few exceptions, thankfully, would say from the river to the sea, you know, the greater land of Israel will be free. I hope you're right. It's just not as catchy. No, it's not. It's bad, bad copywriting. Yeah, it's got meter issues. It does. Does, does that resonate with you, Joshua Molina? Yes. Uh, you know, Baruch Hashem, I hope you're right about the numbers in an Israeli poll. But uh, I mean, I hear greater Israel bandied about. Well, the Molina administration will change all that. <laughs> yeah. I know this is like semantics and things like that, but I think if we're talking about these distinctions, the one that feels important to me is all these, like we, we talked about, like the, the open letters that come out. So many of them barely said anything about October 7th. You can't even bring yourself to say that what happened, stealing babies and grandparents and raping women, like you can't even say that was bad because they were Israeli. I feel like people are so warped in their thinking that they've lost the ability to say like, this shit was really bad. And if it happened anywhere else, we'd all be up in arms, all of these organizations. And I think that that for me is what I'm not seeing still in so many places. And it's like, we've moved on so quickly to like condemnation of Israel for its retaliation as though it, it came out of nowhere, right? Like we're seeing this warped version of events and I think it's like making us feel crazy. That's how I feel. You know, it's funny you mentioned Ainat Wilf. There was a tweet of hers. She writes, in a better world on October 8th, the UN Secretary General, the head of the International Red Cross and other luminaries 
mercenaries would have stationed themselves on the Egyptian border with Gaza, demanding the full, immediate, and unconditional release of all the kidnapped hostages, insisting that Israel owes absolutely nothing to Hamas for the release of children, mothers, the elderly, and civilians, because there is no world in which such acts are okay. Israel is forced to negotiate with the twisted leaders of Hamas for our children only because so many people in official and non-official positions of power failed to do their job and normalized the idea that kidnapping children from their beds and keeping them as bargaining chips is somehow a legitimate act that leads to negotiations rather than to stringent condemnation and global ostracism. This is the world's longest tweet, by the it's way. It's the longest tweet. I don't know how <laughs> le- I don't know how long tweets be can subscriber. be these days. They're right. just called X's. Um, but we're just seeing these like crazy double standards, and it's like just the idea of like releasing terrorists for babies and. I think we've become normalized to like when a soldier gets taken hostage, right? And that's horrible. But it's part of a calculation that we sort of understand, right? These are things that happen in wartime. And then there are all sorts of negotiations that follow. It's really weird to negotiate for like a two-year-old back and to have to give prisoners up for that. And I think it's just like so depressing, honestly. Like that to me is like this underlying feeling. And I think that as I was watching these videos riveted by them, could not stop. You're just realizing the absurdity of what you're watching, right? Like it's this beautiful reunion. But then you're like, these are children that were taken from their parents for no reason. And then the fact that there are people who are like, those are colonizer babies. And you're like, what? Colonizer babies, by the way, is a very good uh, Netflix show. They're so cute. They're really cute. (laughs) But one of the lowest selling uh, Christmas toys this season. (laughs) A colonizer baby? Yeah, nobody wanted it. Yeah, stick with Cabbage Patch Kids. But it's like, even like the UN women stuff, you're like, yeah, no one is coming out and being like, this is this thing that happened. These like mass rapes of women are horrible. And you're like, it's just because they're Israeli. It's so messed up. I think the Gaza is just gone from our eyes. And like, I just feel but like- not the Gaza. The Gaza, Gaza yeah. Has been removed. <laughs> but Stephanie, can we shift gears here? and go from from bad to worse or from worse to worst? As we do. We're not just going to talk about Israel today. We promise you that you'll get a little bit of a break because actually there's another place that we need to focus on today. It is the unofficial country of unorthodox. <laughs> the unofficial, most <laughs> Our hated. sister country. Yes, exactly. We are, we are directly linked with them. News of the Jews. Oh, yeah. TJ News of the Jews. Liel, there's a lot of updates from the nation of Belgium. So let's jump right in. And I want to present this as a tragedy in three acts. I'm going to read to you three letters that we received over the years from the same listener. Josh Cross, music, please. So, once upon a time, the listener identifying herself only as Sabrina wrote to us, Guys, I really enjoy your podcast and listen to it every week, but your last section on Belgium with that letter is, frankly, Very misinformed. I find your way of talking about Belgium insulting and inaccurate. I come from Brussels and there are definitely problems there. But we have a vibrant community that is largely supportive of Israel. Moreover, Liel, yes, there was a pedophile scandal many years ago in Belgium, but I certainly think the U.S. can compete with Belgium from that point of view. So please, guys, check your facts before spreading all kinds of bias. It's not helping anybody. Best, Sabrina. Then a few years later, Sabrina writes again. What a pity you guys don't stop confusing Belgium with Flandre. 
generalizing <laughs> Flemish anti-Semitism <laughs> with Belgian anti-Semitism. These are very good distinctions. The stories you have been telling, especially regarding soccer, are also true for the UK and Holland. You hardly ever speak about the UK where Jews have real problems right now, especially in the Labour Party. You also have been generalizing the anti-Semitism of tiny Alst, I believe it's pronounced Alst, to the whole country. This is where the parade was uh, with the giant Jew figureheads with the big noses. You end up sounding like Trump who called Brussels a shithole. Pity. Fact. Belgium is not the country of pedophilia. You have tons of horrible stories in the U.S. every single day that would never happen in Belgium where there basically one single story 20 years ago with Marc Dutro. I'm a Belgian Jew, pro-Israeli, and I am shocked by how ignorant and relentless you are on the subject. Seriously, stop hammering. It only shows ignorance. I used to love your show, but this has become unbearable. We received a third and final letter from Sabrina this week. <laughs> I will read it in its entirety. I was wrong in my previous emails. Belgium really is a nasty, dangerous, little anti-Semitic country. I'm Israel Chai, Sabrina. <laughs> Sabrina, we love you and we want to support you with uh, with a few just, just from these last couple of weeks in Belgium. Three days ago, at least 85 Jewish graves in a cemetery were desecrated. Uh, also, when asked to screen the video of the Hamas terrorist, the president of the Belgium parliament, refused because she said it was false propaganda that is here to do nothing but spread cruelty against poor, innocent Gazans. And finally, we've also had the best, maybe the best story out of Belgium in a while. This one doesn't involve Jews, but it's too good. This is from the New York Post. Headline, 10 sex-crazed prison guards, staffers, held jacuzzi orgies. One even refused to work before intercourse. Report, Belgium's largest prison is reeling from a wild sex scandal that accused guards and staffers of organizing jacuzzi orgy parties and trading colorful bracelets to determine their sex partners, a local report detailed. And so, once again, the low country with low morals keeps on winning the title of world's greatest shithole. Keep those emails coming. (laughs) You know, Liel, it's like you commit to things and eventually there is a payoff years and years and years later. (laughs) This joke is eight years in the making and (laughs) keeps on being funny. I appreciate what you've given to this over the years. And it's just nice to see, you know, things catching up. I will say Belgium and Spain were also two of the countries that had Israel recall their diplomatic representative because they were simply, you know, completely disinterested in the Hamas attacks and entirely one-sided in insisting that Israel was just the aggressor here and had no right to demand the return of its babies. But because the world is a very small place, and on a serious note, I think it's time to actually shine some light. Yes. Up until now in this episode, we've had nothing but darkness. Shall we? Yes, we are taking things global this week. We talked about Israel, we got to Belgium, and now we're going to head to Ukraine where our friend, philosopher, author, filmmaker Bernard-Henri Lévy has spent a lot of time in the past few years making films, being out there on the front lines, and showing us what's going on there. His latest film is the third in his Ukraine trilogy, and it's called Glory to the Heroes. We called up Bernard and asked him to tell us a little bit about it. Bernard-Henri Lévy, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be with you. Now, look, I have seen this film. I was immensely, immensely, immensely moved by it. I personally strongly believe that, you know, 
Israel's war in Gaza and Ukraine's war with Russia. It's it's part of the same global civilization. But I want to start with a with a provocative question. You know, there are a lot of listeners listening to us right now who maybe have gotten a little tired of of this war in Ukraine. It's been going on for a long time. Who are maybe distracted by the war in Gaza. Uh, why should we care right now about the heroes of Ukraine? Distracted, they would be wrong because it is the same and because uh, the two are completely connected. Hamas would not have dared to attack Israel if you know, Ukraine had won against Putin. This can be demonstrated. I could prove it. Uh, fatigue. Of course, there is, because we, we live in a world where people are real. We, we all have a sort of attention deficit. And uh, to hold the stage uh, for one year and a half, nearly two years, as President Zelensky did, is already a miracle. So there is, of course, a moment of um, emptiness. That is one of the reasons why. I insisted to release this film, uh, to shoot it, first of all, so quickly, to edit it in emergency, and to release it in emergency, too. There's one amazing segment in the film in which we meet two incredible young men, Sasha and Vitali, who are former IDF soldiers, Israelis who train with the Ukrainian military and fight with the Ukrainian military. Why was it important to include this segment? What, what, what are viewers to take away from watching? Because there are many Israeli soldiers who have volunteered in the Ukrainian armed forces. Generally, they don't speak and they don't show their face. For me, being a proud Jew, me, myself, being a Zionist, myself, it was very important to show this proximity, this brotherhood between Israeli fighters and Ukrainian fighters. And I'm happy that the scene, that the segment moved you because I was myself moved when I saw these Jewish boys and these uh, Ukrainian boys uh, having this hug on front line, remembering their souvenirs of brotherhood and ready to go to, to front line again together. I was moved to tears, by the way. Uh, these Israeli veterans whom I film in, 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 my, in my movie, they are former fighters in IDF and they are again fighters, alas, in IDF because on October 7, they moved again from Ukraine to Israel. And at the time we are speaking, they are in Gaza, in special units. It tells the story of these two gentlemen Alex and Vitaly, in a sense, tell the story, the whole story of the link of the big game in which Israel and Ukraine are on the same side on the barricade. The thing that really grabbed me the most about it is that just like the amazing things that we're seeing out of Israel right now with the Israeli public mobilizing so fiercely to fight this war as one, this third movie, Glory to the Heroes, my favorite, by the way, among this trilogy of yours, uh, the Ukraine trilogy, really shows the incredible resilience of ordinary, everyday Ukrainians. There is a, a scene that I think, again, comes to life in a, in a very different way after what we've seen post-October 7th of three very young women who are kept hostage in, in a small, cramped 
basement by the Russians for months with hundreds of uh, other people who, who you take back to this basement, who tell you this thing. So as you were spending time, not just in the front lines, what is it that you saw with, with these ordinary Ukrainians and the way that they mobilized to fight as one? The resilience of the civilians and the heroism of the, of the soldiers, they proved to be inhabited by an incredible and, and beautiful patriotism. There is an Ukrainian miracle as there was in uh, 1948 uh, and 1949, an Israeli miracle. For Ukraine, it's a sort of uh, Israeli moment. What is happening in Ukraine since uh, two years is uh, not unsimilar, not so different from what happened to Israel 75 years ago. And by the way, Israel is, um, for so many of the Ukrainians I met, so many of the Ukrainians whose uh, uh, daily life I shared, Israel is a sort of pattern, of model, of, uh, of re- reference on every level. Mobilization of the society, forget the, the quarrels when the national unity is at stake, build an army out of nothing. So this is what uh, struck me. And for my Jewish and Zionist heart and brain, it was not nothing to perceive all of that. It made a lot of sense. What motivates you to sort of continue this work? I mean, I know a lot of us, We it was Ukrainian flags everywhere, people changing their Facebook photo. It was sort of all the rage to sort of really be supporting Ukraine. And I think as time has gone by, it's gotten harder to command the attention of the masses, right? We've moved on to other things. We're incensed by this. We're outraged by that. How do you stay committed to this cause um, that's clearly very important to you. I keep on because I see that the others are increasingly tired of uh, of Ukraine. And uh, I don't know how to do that. For me, it gives me a, a duty. In general, you know, when you when you can and when you don't do, it can be a real mistake when you can, when you have access, when you have time. When you have money, when you have the ability to to see things and to tell things which others would not see and tell, I consider at least that it is a duty to 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 deliver and to and to fulfill. It, it is a deep moral duty. I mean, the, the book of yours I love the most, "The Will to See," basically says, "Look, it is your moral duty to never ignore the suffering." of people out there in the world, if only to bear witness, which is not only, you know, a, a core tenet of, of your own career, but also a deeply, deeply Jewish thing. I, I kind of wonder, though, because, you know, Stephanie's question does speak to something larger. So many of us, not just in Ukraine, but in life in general, are, are, are kind of the way we go through life is saying, like, you don't have the capacity for it. Like, we, we just want to care about our family. We just want to care about a stupid TV show that we're watching. And, and you're here teaching us a different way. You're saying, I'm sorry, but you have a higher responsibility. I think you have this responsibility when you are, when you are a, a human being in general, when you are a, a woman or a man of, of goodwill, but even more when you have public voice, when you have a, a public existence, when you are an intellectual, you have this, this responsibility. 
And you cannot take the good of it without taking the bad of it. The bad, I mean, the most painful. It is not a joy of every moment to spend uh, your whole summer in trenches, in front line, uh, 100 meters from uh, Russian uh, savages. It's not an easy, an easy going um, summer which I spent. But I have so many advantages. I'm so lucky in life by chance, by by family, by whatever you can, by the favor of the of some people in my country and a little in America who listen to me, who buy my books and so on and so on and so on. The minimum I can do is to try to give back. And what uh, means again, when you are the only one to be able, or one of the few, to be able to do something, and when it is, when it can make a difference, you have to do it. In Ukraine, it is very simple. The, the links I have with the Ukrainians, the, the trust which I built with uh, uh, the political society between uh, 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 me and political society, me and uh, presidential administration, and myself and the ground commanders, this link, this trust, creates an obligation, you know. When I go on the, on the, on the, on the front line, when I am uh, stopped at the checkpoint, and when there is a, a young commander that uh, suddenly wonders if I am not the French man who was on the Maidan in 2014, <laughs> and he has, a, he has a vague remembrance of, the, of that, how can I say? I, I, I really feel... Uh, obliged. I'm curious about the exigencies of of trying to film a, a movie about war during war. How do you do that with any kind of uh, sense of safety or security for yourself and your crew? I have a huge security for myself and also for, for my group, for my team. I don't uh, engage in such an adventure without taking all the possible precautions. It's a complicated system. I have, of course, some fixers. I have some precursors who go in any place uh, one hour or two, um, a few minutes sometime before me. Uh, and all the more because I'm not a young journalist. You know, I'm not a young uh, uh, debutant journalist. Uh, in front of me, the Russians, they probably also have a vague idea of who I am. So I have to be careful. But I am. I am careful. I go as close as I can to the to the combats, but I am not a burnt head, a tête brûlée, as we say in French. I, and even if for myself I feel uh, strangely and absurdly protected, uh, I, I am careful for my for those who who trust me and who follow me, which is my team. Ukrainian and French, and an American. So one more question, and I think this one may be the most important one of all. What does victory look like? Uh, does this war end only when Russia is, uh, you know, defeated and thrown out of every part of Ukraine, or does it end when Putin pays the price for his war crimes? What What's the end goal here? The victory will be when uh, all the enemies of democracy in China, in Middle East, uh, 
close to Iran, when all of them would think twice before engaging themselves in such an adventure as Putin did. Putin has to be defeated. Putin has to to be toppled by his own people, be feeling, I hope, humiliated by this stupid adventure in which Putin uh, threw them. All that has to happen in order that in other parts of the world, dictators, terrorist groups think twice before repeating the same experience. That would be victory. Ukraine is a test which has been uh, implemented by Putin for all his likes, all those who look like him all over the world. Baruch Hashem. Bernard Henri Davy, the film is Glory to the Heroes. It is opening nationwide on December 8th. The New York premiere is December 6th at 6.30 at the UN. If you want to see a movie at the UN, it's the coolest thing you could do. And then there are screenings with Q&A sessions in DC on December 9th at 1 p.m. in LA on December 10th at 1 p.m. We are going to put a link in the show notes to a website where you could register for all this. And I hope we do. Bernard. Thank you for everything that you do and uh, glory to the heroes. Glory to the heroes and friendship to you, my dear Leibovitz. Big friendship, big hug, and to all of you. I got to tell you guys, I've seen this movie. It is absolutely incredible and uplifting and really a testament to Bernard's commitment to this. Watch this movie. And if you can hear Bernard speak, it's a privilege. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. We are excited to announce Tablet's first ever essay competition, First Personal. Our editors are looking for previously unpublished work by writers living in North America who have never written for Tablet before. They are seeking submissions on the theme of belonging. Where do you feel at home or no longer at home, physically, spiritually, or culturally? How do you find community or a sense that you're a part of something larger than yourself? Are there places where you feel a sense of belonging or alienation or both? Tablet is seeking personal essays about your life and your experiences and how your thoughts and feelings have evolved over time. Tablet editors will review all submissions and choose their favorite five, which they will edit with the writers. The authors of those five pieces will be brought to New York City to read their story in front of a live audience. A guest judge will then select the winner. The winning essay will be published in Tablet and the winner will receive $500. For more information and to submit your essay, please visit tabletmag.com slash essay contest. Thank you.
And now it's time for our Gentile of the Week. That is Brooke Eby. She was diagnosed at 33 with ALS, and she joined Stephanie to talk about what it's been like to be diagnosed with a terminal illness at such a young age, and to talk about the work she's doing to raise awareness for the disease and how she's learned to laugh in the face of ALS. Brooke Eby, welcome to Unorthodox. Thank you. So I have to own this on the air. This is not our first interview. We did an amazing interview. I messed up the recording. I'm mortified by that and so gratified that you agreed to return to do this again. I'm honestly glad it was a recording issue and not like a Brooke, you were wildly inappropriate issue. So I will take a recording error any day. We got to a really interesting place at the end of our last interview. And I actually want to dive right in because you're our Gentile of the week, but you were telling me about sort of like your Jewish adjacencies. <laughs> yes. Yes. So I grew up in Potomac, which has a large Jewish population. Then I went to Lehigh, which also has a large Jewish population. Then I moved to New York City. So I feel like, <laughs> you know, I've always kind of been the Gentile of the week or the month or the lifetime, perhaps. What were your early, what were your early Jewish memories? I'm glad you asked because this is unlocking a memory that really jumped to the forefront. There was like a very cute boy when I was in either kindergarten or first grade. He invited me over to make hamantashen. And I remember being like, oh, I am in now. <laughs> and we made it. And obviously, like, it was amazing. It was the best date I never knew I was on. You know, I like this. You've been on the Today Show. I bet they did not ask you about the time you made hamantashen with like Brad Goldstein. No, I don't know that I've ever told that story. What was his name? It was Alex something. Because he is listening right now. Or his mom is listening. And she's like, I do remember that. Yes. It was lovely. Yeah. If you're in Potomac and you invited a young Gentile to come make commentation with red hair, this is your moment to come forward. So I always was curious, and we'll get to like the work you do at some point. Um, <laughs> this is more fun, honestly. Like, what did your parents think of like this Jewish world you were living in where they were like, she's going to make these like triangle cookies for this weird holiday? Like... What was it like for them, for you to be immersed in a Jewish world? So my mom's dad was Jewish. My grandpa was Jewish. He like grew up in Brooklyn, I think like a pretty strong Jewish community. And then I haven't told this story either, but then he met my grandma and I guess his parents really didn't want him marrying someone who wasn't Jewish, which she wasn't. They didn't legally disown him, but they like totally cut off communication with him. And so I think he kind of had a bad taste in his mouth, not for Judaism, but for like the culture and like how exclusive they were being. And so my mom grew up, I think they celebrated Christmas, but I don't think they wanted any sort of religious anything in their lives. But I, I don't think my parents like really care about religion one way or another. This does bring us to an awkward place because there are people who would claim you as Jewish. You have a Jewish grandparent. They would say your mother is Jewish because her father was Jewish. And then therefore right. you are Jewish. So yeah, it's not the mother's mother. There are denominations of Judaism that believe in patrilineal descent as well. So basically you are Jewish. I'll take it. I'll take it it kind of seemed like you knew you, you knew it, you felt it. I feel it. <laughs> I do. So I would love to talk to you a little bit about the activism work you do. You have this, you know, heartbreaking but inspiring story of discovering that something wasn't right with you and your body and the long journey of figuring out what it was. So if you don't mind, would you tell us your story? So in 2018, I was 29 years old, had just moved from San Francisco back to New York City and was working at Salesforce like I still am. And I was walking to a conference and I remember 
My calf had been feeling tight for a few months prior to that, but it didn't affect my walk at all. But as I was walking to this conference, I could tell I was walking slower than all of my colleagues. And I wasn't sure what it was. And a couple of my colleagues were like, yeah, it looks like maybe you're limping, like maybe you hurt something. And when you're 29 and mostly healthy, you're like, oh, I probably just like worked out too hard. I didn't really think much of it until I had my sister look at it. My sister and her husband are both doctors and they were like, walk forward, but only walk on your heels. And my right heel was able to stay up as I was walking and putting weight on it. But my left heel, my foot would just slap down every time. And I guess that's something called foot drop where like the muscles in your foot can't hold themselves up. One thing led to another. It ended up being four years of doctor appointments because every time I would go to a doctor, they couldn't quite pinpoint what was going on. Like they knew the nerves in my left foot weren't working properly, but the rest of my body seemed to be working just fine. And so it really wasn't until beginning of last year, beginning of 2022, that I started having some balance issues and my walking seemed to be getting even worse. So I went back in, they ran all the same tests again, and they saw that I was now having issues in not just the left foot, but also my right foot. And so at that point, they were able to say like, okay, you are progressively having like this motor neuron issue. It's most likely ALS. We're going to put you in touch with an ALS clinic. And it was, it was shocking. I mean, four years of testing and hearing nothing exciting. I kind of just got used to going to the doctors and leaving with question marks. And so I didn't even bring anyone to that appointment where I got diagnosed. I just showed up alone, had the same test done. I was like making small talk with the doctor. I didn't really think anything of it until he wheeled up next to me and was like, I'm really not liking what I'm seeing. And so March, 2022, I was finally able to get an ALS diagnosis at the age of 33. That's a terminal illness at 33. I mean, how do you, on the one hand, I imagine having an answer is incredibly satisfying. Yes. On the other hand, it's it's a devastating one. Yeah, it was a bizarre feeling. I think my first reaction was to Google ALS, which like I can't recommend against enough because it's terrifying to Google. Basically, what I learned is that ALS is a disease that disconnects your brain from your muscles. So there's something that connects the two called a motor neuron, those motor neurons die off when you have ALS. So basically everything that's allowing my brain to communicate to muscles is dying slowly but surely. For me right now, that means just my legs. So my legs are mostly paralyzed at this point. I can't move them. But eventually that means every muscle in your body. So, you know, you think of like your arms and legs moving, but Your muscles also control your speech, your swallowing, all the way to your breathing. That's obviously a a pretty devastating diagnosis in the sense that it's expected you live like two to five years after diagnosis. I've had symptoms for five years now, so I'm considered a a slow progressor and I'm still gabbing away, which uh, is really lucky. So I spent a couple months really after the diagnosis just like grieving what I thought my life was going to be. And then I just kind of got over it. And I was like, if I'm still talking, I should start talking about it more and just go for it. And that's been the last like year and a half. And you describe on social media where you've been sharing a lot of this, being at a friend's wedding, like a switch flipped. Will you tell us sort of about when you decided to embrace the unexpected circumstances your life had taken? So yeah, those, those two months after I got diagnosed, I was just eating chocolate in bed. Like that was what I was doing. I was like shock. And then I had a friend's wedding, a a good college friend where I was a bridesmaid and I was wearing like a bridesmaid's dress that was too tight because I had only been eating chocolate for two months. 
and I was using a walker. And like, when you see your college friends, you're like, I want them to think I'm doing great. You know, it's like the high school reunion phenomenon where people like lose weight and they get spray tans and like uh, fillers and all this stuff. Like I was having the opposite moment where I was like, my dress doesn't fit. I'm using a walker. What else can go wrong here? So I was walking into the wedding and I turned to my friend and I was like, please, please, let's just leave. I like, can we just escape? Like, no, 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 no. And she was like, it could be really embarrassing, but like, we could just make it really fun. Like, what if we just made it really fun? So I, I kind of like faked it for the first hour or so. It was like a fake it till you make it situation. But a couple hours in, I was just on the dance floor with my walker and I was like giving people walker rides on the dance floor. And we had the bride limboing under my walker. And I was like, okay, I I feel okay. Like despite using the same walker that the bride's grandmother was using, like we were comparing models. <laughs> despite that, I'm still able to have fun with this. And so like a month or so after that, I downloaded TikTok and I was like, let's just keep having fun with it and see what happens. You have this great attitude and you're sharing the realities of your life. And I think people are really, really connecting to you and your story. Yeah, I think it's a weird juxtaposition of seeing a somewhat young face talking about dying soon. And like, I don't feel like, you know, I'm going to go tomorrow by any means, but like, knowing I have a disease where there's only one possible outcome, I think is interesting for people to see. Like when I pictured ALS, I pictured like old grandpas. Like I pictured, I mean, Stephen Hawking and Lou Gehrig were both not super old, but I think beyond that, the only people I knew were like friends, grandparents and, you know, 80 to 90 years old. I pictured men. Everything I knew about ALS was wrong. I thought it was like a genetic thing. I thought it was super rare. I thought it was only affecting old people. And I was just every single thing I thought was was incorrect. I want to be like a more approachable face to this disease because most people when they get diagnosed really don't have time. Like they lose their voice quickly. They die quickly. It's a very quick death sentence. And so I've been given this disease, but knock on wood, like the best possible case for this disease. So I kind of have to speak because no one else is able to. So will you actually educate us a little bit? Are there a lot of young people who are getting ALS? Can you give us sort of some of the numbers? I wish I could give numbers. It's mostly anecdotal. ALS is not like a legally registered disease. So like you don't actually have to say you have ALS the way like you do with cancer, where like doctors record it and it goes into some statistic number. ALS does not have that. What I can say is I'm in a group of young women who were diagnosed with ALS before the age of 35. I think there's like 80 members right now, and it's growing at about like two women a month. So it's definitely not the old person's disease we all think it is. I do think like it's more likely that you get it, I think, between ages like 50 and 70. But like it really does not discriminate as a disease. It can strike anyone, anytime any genetic background, like it does not discriminate. What are some of the concerns of the young women in this group who are in their 30s and just, you know, living their lives with ALS? Yeah, well, when I first got diagnosed, I was put in touch with a local support group and I joined that support group and it was me and mostly older men. There were a few like middle-aged women, but I remember joining and being like, how did I get here? Like, how is this my cross to bear? It just felt like, I was like, did lightning strike here or is this like not representative? And so I went in search of a group that 
had younger faces and was put in touch with this group, Her ALS Story. And we have a group chat. I would say like, it's just been really nice to talk to people in the same stages of life. Like some people are single and dating. Some women are newly married or like they got married and got diagnosed two weeks later. We have a girl who came back from her honeymoon and started slurring her speech and got diagnosed. It's just like not what you expect your 30s or sometimes 20s to be. Like you think you have this huge runway of a future and then this comes and just chops that future off. So a lot of it is, you know, questions about relationships. There's obviously like the medical side where we talk about symptoms and management. But I think a lot of it is just like bonding over dark humor at this point, because like, what else can you do other than laugh if you're being told like, you're in your 30s and you're dying, which is like a blunt way of what the doctors say. They never say it like that. But all of us just kind of like, it's not even commiserating. I think we're honestly finding more joy in life, knowing that it's probably going to be shorter. And we just kind of bond over it. That's incredibly profound. Also, very Jewish, just saying. (laughs) No, wait, which part? Just the idea of dark humor and like making light of a terrible situation when there's nothing else you can do, right? You know, at least I'm going to laugh about it and I'm going to take control over it by making light of it in a way. Yeah. It's like, what else can you do? Like, I'm sure there are people with ALS who just grieve and they're depressed and like, that's fair too. But after like two months of doing that, I was like, okay, there's, you know, if I've got five years left, like, I really don't want to spend it in this bed eating more M&Ms. And so I just kind of like started laughing about it and haven't really stopped since. And I will say like the comedy writes itself, honestly. Like there's some stuff with ALS where you just have to make it a joke because it's unbelievable. Like I was walking out of a restaurant with one of my best friends. We went into the bathroom and we came out. I was using my walker and there was like a trail of toilet paper attached to my walker. And I like looked at my friend and she was like, God really is not giving you a break. Like he, he just said like, let's double down on Brooke today. And I was like, how is this my life at 30? Like you would picture your like glamorous life, you know, in the future when you're like, oh, in my thirties, I'm going to have my life together. I'm going to have a family. And I was like, I'm trying to figure out how to get toilet paper off of my walker. Like give give me a break. The work you do is so inspiring. It's also taken you to some pretty amazing places. Will you tell us a little bit about some of the places you've been, places you've spoken, places you've been interviewed. The first huge one was the Today Show that they slid into my DMs. Like that's how that all happened was the Today Show DM'd me. But then in the last month, it's been like ALS event season. A few weeks ago, I spoke at the ALS TDI event and they put me like right before this really inspirational speaker. And I was like, screw that. Like I'm not gonna be able to compete with her. So instead of doing any kind of inspirational thing, I decided to do stand-up comedy, which I've never done before. And I just like wrote down all of my jokes and sent them to a couple of my friends who are comedians. And I was like, can you revise this? And yeah, I just like did an ALS version of stand-up comedy. And then last weekend, I got to be a square in an ALS Hollywood Squares event. I never watched that show. I'm sure you didn't either. It was before our time, but it felt pretty cool. I was like, I am a star now. I'm in, I'm a square. That's amazing. So can you tell us a little bit about the Limp Brusket, Limp Brusket? We talked about how to say this last time. The Limp Brusket universe. My first symptom was a limp. 
I was trying to think of like good usernames on TikTok and everyone on TikTok has really dumb usernames. Like it's, it's a place where usernames usually don't matter. Like I get comments from like, I don't know if this is appropriate, but I get like Lord Farquaad's left nut will comment <laughs> on my, and I'm like, that's a username. Like, how is that possible? And so usernames don't have a, a ton of significance, but I was trying to think of a really good, like ALS pun or like motor neuron type pun. And since I was limping, I was like, oh, I'll just do like, instead of limp biscuit, I'll just like throw my name in the middle of it and make it like limp bruise kit. And now it's been like a year and a half and I've like fully committed to the bit. Limp Bizkit's like a, nobody's favorite band. Gen Z doesn't even know who it is. Like, I'm like, I don't know that this is the right choice, but we're sticking with it. But I like it. It's catchy and there's merch, which is really the, the most important thing. I worked with this company, Bonfire, that like will donate proceeds to an organization. I was like, oh, that's perfect. And they helped make me like a band style t-shirt. So it looked like a Limp Bizkit t-shirt, but it said Limp Bruise Kit. And then on the back, it said like, keep rolling, rolling, because that's one of their songs. So will you tell people how they can follow you, get your swag, your merch? I'm Limp Bruise Kit across all platforms. And the link is in my bio. It's just like a bonfire.com slash Limp Bruise Kit, if anyone is curious. Will you spell that for our listeners? L-I-M-P-B-R-O-O-Z-K-I-T. If our listeners want to learn more about ALS, where should they go? If they don't, they shouldn't Google it, but where should they direct them to someplace? Don't Google it. Well, I would say if you have it, don't Google it. Or if you think you have it, don't Google it. Because you'll convince yourself you have anything if you Google it. Whenever people ask me, I'm like, I have two recommendations for you. One, if you get diagnosed, find a support group. And that's for anything like ALS, not ALS, like whatever it is support groups will make you feel so much better and so much less alone. But the second place, now there's a website called Rune, R-O-O-N as in Nancy. It's an app that you can download to your phone or it's a website. And it's basically like the place you should go to navigate ALS. Like they recruited a ton of us, people living with ALS, top doctors, top providers, caregivers, and they interviewed us with like a hundred questions each and just made little clips of all of our answers. So you can go in and do like a, I was just diagnosed. What do I need to know type of guide? And it'll guide you through all of our videos. So it's a lot less overwhelming and a lot less scary. Like I I think with Google, they just give you statistics. Like if I had looked at Google, I'd be like, Oh, I should have been dead three years ago. But if you go onto rune, it's a little gentler and you can understand like, how to actually navigate the disease. And as a Gentile, I know we've decided that you're Jewish. We've taken you. I don't know how you feel about that, but we've, we've, we've claimed you. You did have a Gentile of the Week question for us. I do. What celebrity like best embodies Jewish culture in your mind? I said Adam Sandler last time, and I really stand by it because he's just like a big Jewy Jew. You know, like he's like got that like schlubby dad thing. He's like, he owns it. He does these... Jewish movies, the Hanukkah song. Like, I think he's very in your face Jewish. And I like, I think more than ever, we need that like super mainstream, funny pop culture icon at this point who doesn't ever shy away from his Jewishness. What's your answer? I should, I should say Josh, because he's not here. But also, how do you feel about Larry David is my answer. Like, it's more of a question posed back. I think he's another great answer here. I find, like, I don't like watching Curb Your Enthusiasm. It makes me very uncomfortable. That's how my boyfriend feels about it. He's like, I get a pit in my stomach when I watch it. I'm just like, oh, yeah. I love it. But look, I'm not surprised that you love Larry David. Your whole, like, you've been talking this whole time about, like, 
looking at dark things and finding humor, looking at like uncomfortable, bad, negative situations and just being like, this is so absurd. I have to laugh, which is like totally the Larry David thing. I feel like you should be on an episode. I'm down. What's something very horrible he could do in terms of like the things you experience from people like not understanding or not being accommodating? So in my like stand up, my sit down stand up, I did my riskiest joke, which actually got the most laughs was MS has like Selma Blair and Christina Applegate making it look super chic. And like all these millennials are looking to them being like, okay, like I could fuck with MS. Like they're like, walking with the president with their canes and like getting their stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. It's like, like a big MS is is doing something. But with ALS, like we really don't have that. And people say like, oh, well, you guys have Stephen Hawking, which sure, but like he didn't make ALS cool in my mind. Like he's a genius, he's a legend, but like, did he make ALS cool? And so then I went on to be like, I would never wish ALS upon anyone. But if I had to pick, like if, if a Kardashian got ALS, like I would be saved in a week. Like they would, Chris Jenner would take this disease down in like no time. And so I feel like Larry David could do something where he's like wishing ALS upon someone to, in order to help the disease. Oh it was, God. it's a bold joke. Luckily I was in a room full of people who had experience with ALS. And so like no one took it in a bad way. But so, when I posted it on TikTok, I got a couple like, this is truly <laughs> terrible. No, that is amazing. That is brilliant. And I feel like we can make this 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 bit happen on um, Curb Enthusiasm. Where like he and you are in a room trying to figure out who the celebrity should be, who's going to be like the face of this. Yeah, I mean, there's not, yeah, there's there's not like a short list of people that like I've thought about. Like I wouldn't wish it, but like I just think about if they were to get it, wouldn't that be really helpful for the community? But we have you, Brooke Eby. We have I'm you. Working on it, you you know? are chic. You are fun. You make good videos. You got good jokes. Got jokes. Yeah. Brooke Eby, thank you for being on Unorthodox. Our listeners can follow along on Instagram and TikTok at Limp Bruzkit. That's L-I-M-P-B-R-O-O-Z-K-I-T. Thank you so much. Perfectly pronounced. Thank you. All right, time for some Mazel Tubs. Who wants to kick us off? I've got a quick Mazel Tub to my favorite Simpsons character, Ned Flandre. <laughs> it's been a tough episode for him. Just a little hat tip, not an anti-Semite. Boys, we're Jewish now. <laughs> in fact, probably a philo-Semite. Uh, so in a note of atonement, while I take back nothing I've ever said about Belgium, as as listeners of the show know, I did uh, make teshuva. I did repent when it comes to ice hockey, a sport which I used to say unkind things about and we're taking the task and now I'm a big fan of. So my mazel tov this week goes to New York Rangers defenseman Adam Fox, who is spreading some schmear. He partnered with Brooklyn Bagel and Coffee Company to create a special video series called Bagels and Fox. Because, of course, it needs to have a pun in the title. Quote, as a Jewish kid from Long Island, a bagel partnership is something I'm extremely excited about, said Fox, thereby confirming every stereotype about Jews you ever had. He will now also have his own bagel at their stores called The Foxy. It is a sesame bagel (laughs) with, get this, fried eggs, lox, cream cheese, and tomato. Bold move there, the eggs and the locks. I love it. Adam Fox, mazel tov.
Wow, that is amazing. I have a belated birthday mazel tov to my aunt, Pam Harris, super listener, super supporter of this show and of everything that I do. And I just want to say happy birthday, Pam. Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by me, Stephanie Butnick, with Leah Leibovitz and Joshua Molina. We're produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccia, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. And our team includes Tanya Singer, Courtney Hazlett, and Daron Ruskay, with help from Sam Hacker and Jordana LaRosa. Our episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Our logo and swag is by Jenny Rosbrook. Our theme music is by Golem. And our news and mailbox themes are by Steve Barton. We'd love to hear from you. Send us emails at unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Years later, respond to them and tell us that you were wrong. <laughs> or actually, more likely, tell us that we were wrong. Leave us a message on our listener line, 914-570-4869. Until next week, shalom, friends. Shalom, friends. 